1 Timothy chapter 6. Our focus will be verse 13 to 16, but we're going to also read from verse 11. We really have reached the time of year that I think most of us look forward to. Uh, when we struggle through February and March, remember when you don't see the sun uh, forever, and we say one day it'll be June and July. That's where we find ourselves, even though smoke had kind of blocked the sun for a little bit, didn't it, uh, this week. But we get to the time of year, I know that I en enjoy, I enjoy this time of, of year each and every year. It always seems to be a lot of excitement in people's lives. I know in our family, uh, there's a lot that goes on. Number one, we have the, the 4th of July, which we always like, and usually people get together and have a good time with that. But July seems to be the birthday month in our family. I know my daughter's birthday is this coming Wednesday, and so we'll celebrate that. i got a lot of friends whose birthday is in July. One of them's today, actually, I believe. Uh, but it just seems to be fun. People seem to be a little more joyful when the sun is out and when it's warm. And then it gets too warm, and you complain it's too warm, don't you? But it does seem to be a time... Of excitement. You know, I was thinking about that as we just sang this last song. I like that last song that we just sang, Praising the Lord Our God. And I wonder if we know what that means. I wonder uh, if that sometimes just becomes words. And we're going to look a little bit this morning, I think, that will hopefully lead us to praise God. And we'll dive into it in a moment. But we have to remember that all good things come from our God. And if he was not kind to us and gracious to us, we wouldn't get to celebrate birthdays. We wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the 4th of July with friends and with family. Celebrate freedom we have. These are good things, but they are good things that come from the Lord our God. And so I hope that we are cemented and firm on what that means. Paul in our passage today can't help himself, as you'll see at the end, but to praise God. And so we'll get there uh, towards the end, but follow along with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, which we already looked at, verses 11 and 12, but we're going to read those again all the way through 16, all right? It says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of of many witnesses, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul's getting ready to wrap up this letter. You'll notice there's only a, a few verses left uh, after today. And as I said, you see he kind of starts to praise at the end, which we'll get to. But he does tell Timothy something in verses 13 and 14, he gives Timothy here a charge. And he charges Timothy to keep the commandment. Now, there's some debate about what this 
uh, really means. Is Paul referring like the Ten Commandments uh, specifically? There's some who might think that, but I think what's more realistic here is Paul is telling Timothy to keep all of the commandments that he has told him about the pastorate here. In this letter, he's been talking to Timothy as a pastor about being a pastor, about uh, running the church, what it should look like, all these different things we've seen in Timothy there. And so I think that's what Paul is encouraging Timothy and reminding him to do. He's saying, Timothy, it is vital for you to live a faithful life as a pastor, but even as non-pastors, we are to live a faithful life. But he says, you need to do this. Pastor the church well and do what you are called to do and do it faithfully. And so that means preaching the word. Uh, he tells them, remember your calling. Right? We, we had a whole service about that, about, about the, the calling. And how, do, how does the pastor know he's doing what God has called him to do? Well, the church helps in that, doesn't he, by calling them, him to be the pastor there. And he also tells Timothy at times to remember your baptism. Right? Remember your baptism. So all these things have been laid on Timothy. And Paul now is telling Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, keep this commandment. And not just to keep it, but to keep it unstained. Now, as I said, this, yes, is written to a pastor, but as we've seen in this letter, there's truths for all of us in here, whether you're a pastor or not. And we see that we've been called to live holy lives. We've been called to grow in the Word continually. We've been called to be united as believers in, in the church. We've been called to share the gospel with those who are lost and dying without hope and without any peace whatsoever. And this is just some of what we must be doing as Christians. And so the question then would come, I don't know if it comes to you, but it comes to me. How in the world can I do all this? How do we do all of this that it's telling us to do? Because it seems pretty daunting to do this. And then Paul adds on to it, if it's not daunting enough, he says there in verse 14, to keep this commandment what? Unstained and free from reproach. So I'm called to do all this stuff, and I'm called to do it in a way that doesn't dilute at all the commands that are given to us. Right? We're called now to live in a way that we keep the commandments, but we do it in an honorable way. We do not want to dishonor any of the commands that have been given. We don't want to dishonor the Lord. We don't want to give anybody a right at any moment to question them based on me. And so I want you to think about your life this past week. At any point of time in your life this past week, did you dilute the commands of God? Or, or was, could somebody have looked at your life and said, oh, that's what being a Christian's about? Mm. I think we all feel guilty when we talk about it that way, don't we? Then if we could just venture into your mind a little bit, how much more embarrassing does it become? Of how quickly we just dilute the commands of God. Yet Paul here is telling Timothy, don't do anything to do this to the commandments. Keep them unstained and free from reproach. Yet we all sin continually. We all fall short. We're called to righteous living, yet it seems so difficult uh, to do. Even when we try our best, it's hard. And remember again, Paul's talking to Timothy as a pastor, telling him again to live out his faith, which he had told him before. Remember, Timothy was young, and people were coming at him for his age, and remember what Paul's solution was to Timothy. He said, live a holy life, and they'll have nothing to say to you. You know, live what you've been called to be, and they, they can't then come and stand up against you. And so Paul's just kind of reiterating this again to Timothy. But I want to stress, this is exhausting. 
Is it not? I'm not alone in this, I don't think. It is exhausting to be the Christian that the Bible calls us to be, to be the people that God calls us to be. And there are times the question comes up in my mind, how long must I do this? Right? How long should I go about doing this and living in this way? Because it's just difficult. Paul says this is a race. I'm tired. Right? A lot of us are better at short little bursts instead of long marathons. And in our life, we're like, what? this is a long marathon, and I'm, I'm struggling here. And so the question comes to me of how long should I do this? And Paul answers it for us in this passage, doesn't he? Not necessarily the answer we were hoping for, maybe. But we keep it when? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that should give us more, more reason to pray, Lord, come now, right? I'm exhausted. Lord, come, come now so I can be done, so it can be, can be over with. But we see that God has called us to keep the commands that he has given the church until Christ returns. And so, what are we supposed to keep? The commandments that God has given us. No new agendas, no new strategies, no new goals. It's been the same all along. And we are to keep doing this faithfully until Christ returns. I'm sure you've had jobs before that just seems monotonous and it seems boring. And then you start to wonder, will anybody even notice Maybe some of you who work on the, in the auto industry, you've been there before. I, I got to work that job for a couple years. And there were times, if I'm being honest, cars passed by and I'm like, did I even put the screws in there? I don't remember. This is car number 500 today. I think I did. Nobody's really checking. It'll be okay, type of thing. And then you start to wonder, how many could I not do? Could I go to the bathroom and come back and anybody notice? It just gets very monotonous. And I think sometimes as Christians, we start to feel this way. Come on, this whole holy living thing, this whole going to church, this whole uh, being preached to, all this Lord's Supper stuff, uh, baptism stuff, there's got to be something new. There's got to be uh, uh, something else. I, I'm getting kind of bored with this. I, I haven't perfected it. I'm not doing it all too well. But it's not exactly exciting. It's not exactly uh, refreshing like I think it should be anymore. Is there not something else? Well, Paul is warning Timothy about that here. You keep this commandment and you keep doing it until Christ appears. If Christ doesn't appear, guess what? You keep doing it. But Timothy, when you see him, when he comes back and you see him face to face, then you will know the race is over. It's done. But until then, keep going. Now, I think we also should notice this, that it tells us that Christ will come back, right? Do it. And it says in verse 15, which he will display when? At the proper time. Now let that sink into you. At the proper time, Christ will return. Now this was good for me to hear because there are times that I think Jesus maybe didn't hear the Father say, hey, it was time to go years ago. Because we start to think it's horrible here. I don't know if it can get much worse. Christ, should you not have already Come. Now, you've got to be careful with that type of thinking because it can be very sinful. Because the Bible tells us Christ will come when? At the proper time. Not your time. Not Tim's timing. No, at the proper, at the proper time is when Christ will return. And we need to make sure we do not doubt God's timing. But instead, what we do is we trust in his timing and we remain faithful while we wait. We continue to do 
what he's asked us to do. We continue to serve him and honor him in the commandments that he has given us. And yes, this is a big and exhausting task. But Paul cements this in two witnesses. He gives us two witnesses to this charge that he gives to Timothy to say, this is why you do it. Because frankly, a lot of people today, and you know probably some of them for sure, they've just kind of stopped doing it. I'm sure you think of people when I say that in your life who at one time seemed to be very faithful Christians, but now today they just, other things have crowded their life. It's just kind of faded off. And they're not willing to fight this fight anymore. And you wonder why. You know, what's going on? Well, I wonder if maybe they've forgotten the two witnesses that Paul gives to Timothy here. And he says, this is why you keep doing it. You see, it's one thing to be told to do something by someone. You know, somebody, I don't know, just some random person or whatever it might be says, hey, go do this. Now, you might do it and you might not do it. But it's another thing to be told by somebody you respect greatly or who has some sort of power over you when they tell you to do something. So when someone you love dearly asks for a favor, you probably jump on it right away. You probably do whatever you can to go do the task that they ask you to do, no matter how big or how small it might be. Or when your boss tells you to do something, you do it. Why do you do it? He signs your check. (laughs) That's why you get paid. That's why you do it. It might not be because of respect or anything, but he has power over you. If the king comes to you and asks a favor of you, what do you do? You drop whatever you're doing and you go do it. Why? Because it's the king. And he has great power over you. He has great control over you. And maybe he can pour great blessing on you. And so you're going to do that. You see, it matters who gives the charge. It matters who tells somebody what to do. You see, at youth camp, I'm known for having a whistle. I carry a whistle with me. And everybody in the youth camp knows that when Tim blows that whistle, you have one agenda and only one agenda. I don't care if you're going to the bathroom. You stop, you you pinch it off, and you come get in line. It's time to get in line. That's what you do. And they know that, and they're on teams, and they have, to be, they have to be in their lines. But here's something that's always interesting. It happens every year. Somebody brings a whistle, or they record a whistle. And it's funny to see, because they'll do it, or they'll blow it, and people around them start to run, and they start to run to get in line. But what always happens is they realize Tim didn't blow the whistle. And so what do you think happens when they realize Tim didn't blow the whistle? They don't get in line. They go back to doing whatever they were doing. It's because at youth camp, this is the only whistle that matters. And so there's a sign of respect and authority that goes with that, that now they come. See, see, it matters who is making the charge. And so Paul knows here that he can't tell Timothy, Timothy, I know you respect me, and I'm telling you to keep the commandment. No, what does he do? He grounds it in two people. First of all, Jesus Christ. First, he grounds it in Jesus Christ for us today. And he says, I appeal, and he, how does he appeal? To Jesus' confession before Pilate, he says. Well, let's see what Jesus confessed before Pilate. It's in John chapter 18, verse 33 to 38. 
And in John 18, verses 33 to 38, it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Okay, let me stop there. Because this is an important part of Jesus' confession. Jesus is not dumb. And he knows at this moment he stands before the man who has all absolute power to kill him. No matter what, whatever Pilate says can be done. Scourge him, crucify him, whatever Pilate says, or you're free. And yet he stands before Pilate, and Pilate asks him the question, what have you done? And Jesus makes the good confession here that's being talked about. It says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told him, I find no guilt in him. Here Jesus stands before Pilate and he confesses to Pilate that yes, he is a king, but not the type of king he's used to seeing, not the type of king he's used to hearing about. He says, I'm not a, a king of this world, I'm king of the, of the heavens. And so Jesus makes this confession before the one who can have him killed, and it is understood and it always been understood that what Jesus is doing is here is he is claiming to be Messiah. This is what would lead to his death, the fact that he would say that he was the Son of God. And so it's important for us to understand what Paul is doing here because it's very similar to what we see in Hebrews chapter 12, which I referenced a couple weeks ago. Just as Jesus stood before his executioner, he stood before the one who could have him killed, what did he do? He, he boldly confessed the truth. He said, this is who I am. This is what I have been sent for. And so the question that Paul is putting before Timothy as putting Jesus as the first witness of this charge is he's saying, if Jesus is willing to do this, so you should as well, Timothy. And that charge still comes down for us today. If our Savior and Lord would stand and make the good confession, why would we not stand and continue to make the good confession? Why would we not stand and continue to fulfill the commandments that he has given us and to, and to do the things that he has called us to do. See, it's not on Paul. Paul says, no, this is on Jesus. He would have us do this. As I said earlier, it's extremely hard to keep the commandments. I, I don't want to water that down at all. It's very hard to keep the commandments in a world that is totally lost. It's so hard to speak truth to people who don't believe in truth. I mean, that's just so common today. That's your truth. What about my truth? For me, that is the most frustrating thing to talk about. I, I got to walk away. What? There's no basis. There's nothing to say. And so it's so hard to keep the commandments that God has called us to keep, of, of sharing the gospel, of loving our neighbor, 
being faithful to him in these things. Because the world is so lost and pushing back so much. Yet, Paul says, but Tim, you have a loving Savior. You have a loving Savior who isn't telling you just to go and do these commandments. He actually came and did it for you. He led by example. He stood before the executioner. And he continued to fulfill the Father's wishes all the way to the cross. And so what we have in Jesus is we don't just have some example, which a lot of people want to make Jesus out to be. Some example that we're supposed to follow. No, we have in Jesus, yes, he, he can be an example in a way, but he's our Savior who went in our place because he knew very well that you and I would fall short of this commandment. He knew that we wouldn't be able to keep up. He knew that we would fall short, and so what did he do? He said, I will go in their place. And so we have in our Savior, one who died for us, one who has given us his righteousness. And so now, yes, we, we look to Jesus as an example, but we know we can't follow it perfectly, but we rest in the grace that he has provided us through his blood. And so when Paul when Paul's writing to Timothy here, he's saying, Timothy, here's one reason why you should keep the commandment, why you should keep doing what God has called you to do. Keep preaching the word. Keep staying true to all of this. Jesus is the reason. He did it. He kept going. See, it's one of my favorite passages to remind myself is in Hebrews chapter 12. I think I said this before. But I like how the writer of Hebrews put it because it's kind of, it kind of has the same uh, personality as, as me a little bit because it seems like the church that he was writing to was starting to whine because they were facing a little bit of persecution. You know, there's maybe a little of that going on. I don't know how intense. And Paul's response was very simple. Oh, you follow Jesus who died on the cross and you haven't even faced any bloodshed yet and you're already wanting to quit? Good job. Oh, way to be faithful. Oh, way to be strong. Way to fall on your face and say, Jesus, you are my Savior. I will carry the cross wherever I may go. Unless it makes me bleed a little, I'm out. Until somebody makes fun of me. And the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't even bled yet. And you're already wanting to quit? You're already out? This is why we need words like this from Paul, saying, remember, keep these commandments. But remember, it's cemented, first of all, in Jesus Christ. But there's another thing there, isn't it? He uses as a witness God the Father. In verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Now, Paul says a lot of things about God the Father, and we're going to look at each one uh, real quickly this morning as we end. But first he says, God the Father, the giver of all life. Paul grounds his charge in God who gives all life. And this command comes, what does Paul say? He says, it's not coming from me. It's coming from the one who allows you to breathe every day. So if you're willing to drop everything you're doing because your boss signs your paycheck, you better do everything the Father says. Why? Because your lungs don't work without him. Your heart doesn't beat without him. He's created you. He's, he's made you. And these are the commands he's called for you to have. How quick we forget this gift of life that's only given to us by God. We have to remember that as Christians. I opened up this morning talking about birthdays and all this stuff, and I, I didn't mean that flippantly. 
The only reason I get to celebrate another birthday of a family member or of a friend is because God has allowed that to happen. God has poured mercy on them and allowed them to live to another birthday where we can celebrate their birth, which a reminder, they did nothing for. They didn't choose to be born. They didn't pick to be born. God allowed them to be born. And God created them. And so we get to have these fun days and these fun times. Why? Because God is the giver of all life. Some of you probably are going on vacation this summer. And why can you do that? Why can you go and enjoy the good things of this world? Well, it's very simple. The reason you get to enjoy that is because God is the giver of life. He's allowed that to happen. He's allowed that to take place. And so Paul cements it first saying, God the Father, the giver of all life. And then he goes on to describe God as the blessed and only sovereign. He's pointing out here that it is within God the Father where blessedness reigns and comes from. It is he who controls all blessings. Every single blessing stems from God. It cannot come unless God allows it. And we see God's mercy, don't we, on a lost and dying world, even for those who are unsaved, even for those who who hate him and speak evil of him. What still is a part of their life at times? Blessings. Oh, they may not praise him for it, but it's him who gives them them blessings. Now we as Christians in here this morning, we come in here and we, we sing this song, Oh, praise the name. This is what should be on our mind. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Why? Because he's the giver of all good things. And the fact is, most of us this morning drove in here on a car. You didn't have to walk here. You come in here, and I had people complaining in the back, it's a little muggy in here. Can we, can we crank the AC just a little bit more? You know, these are the things that we worry about, which I do too. Don't get me wrong, I don't like sweating uh, for no reason. So I'm not making fun of you. I'm just saying, blessing on blessing on blessing. And who would we be then if we came and we sat in these pews and we sing these songs and we think, you know what? I just don't have it today. You don't have what today? You don't have your Savior who died for you? You don't have God, the giver of all good things, the blessed one? Paul goes on, not just the blessed one, but says, he alone is the true sovereign. And this is true only because of his attributes, his his omni-attributes, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present. This is the God today that we come to serve, that we come to praise. And I, I know I talk about this a lot, but you need to be reminded, God knows every single part of you. He knows all your hidden sin. He, he knows everything you hide from your spouse, everything that you hide from your kids, everything that you can hide from your boss. He knows all of that. And yet his son died for you. He died for you. The ungodly, at just the right time, he would die for you. And now when you think about yourself, you probably think, I wouldn't die for myself. But yet God loves you so much that he would die for you even knowing everything about you at all times. Paul continues on and he describes God the Father as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is declared to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none who can stand beside him. There's none who can ever get up to his level. It can never happen. Why? Because of his power and because of his might and because of his wisdom. There's there's no end to any of it. Nobody can ever compare for a second to our God. 
And we are going to celebrate the 4th of July, and part of that celebration is that we're the best. That's what we're doing. We're celebrating that we are the best, that we won, right? Years and years and years ago, we had a big fight, and guess who came out on top? We did, and we shoot off fireworks and do all that because of it. And we're not shy to declare that. And it's easy for us as Americans to boast about that. Why? Because we have a lot of military power behind us. So most of the time, we can back up what we're saying. And so we take pride in that. Well, as Christians, we have a God that no nuclear warhead could touch. We have a God that no army could ever come against for a second. That's pitily to him. He can look at that army and say, stop, stop heart breeding. No more, no more hearts for you. Done. Over. That's no battle. This wasn't difficult. That's the God that we come and have the privilege of worshiping together each and every week. He's the king of all kings. There will never be one greater, and he is the Lord of all lords. People try to declare themselves as lords. They try to rule over people. But we have to be reminded that God is our Lord. He is the Lord of all lords. And at one point in time, hopefully very soon, the Bible tells us that every knee will bow to him and declare to him, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Even those who denied it with their whole life. Well, Paul has other things to say about God the Father. He says, alone has immortality. Paul reminds Timothy of God's magnificence and his awesomeness. And he reminds Timothy... And he alone is immortal. Now, you might argue that point, and some try to, and say, well, we're immortal, right? We, the Bible talks all about that, that one day we will be with him forever, or there will be some separated from him, eternity in hell. And so how can it say here that God is immortal? Well, what Paul's talking about here is in him lies immortality, and he alone can give immortality. You and I cannot do that. I realized that pretty quickly when I garden. I can't even make my garden live for weeks, let alone be immortal. I can't give out life like that. Only God can do that. And God has been gracious enough to put that on us and then to save us through the blood of Jesus. Then he says uh, that he alone dwells in inapproachable light. See in verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. Whenever we see this type of phrase, what's being talked about here is the holiness of God. This speaks to God's holiness and to his splendor and to his perfection. I don't think we dwell enough on this fact. I think we think about God's power. We think about God's wisdom. That's stuff that we, I think that's stuff that we can somewhat understand. But when it comes to God's holiness and it being described here as an unapproachable light I think it's hard for us to fathom that because we are just so far removed from that we understand our sin and how unholy we actually are and so to think of God as being perfect in all things and because of that perfection he's he's just completely unapproachable us as sinners cannot We cannot come to him. We cannot dwell in his presence. Why? Because because of his holiness. It's just just so beyond us that it actually becomes something that is, is frightening. Because when we see in Scripture 
uh, people come into the presence of God, every single time they get knocked down as dead. They're scared for their life. And it's not because of God's power or his might. It's always because I'm unclean and you're perfectly clean. I, I just shouldn't be here. I just, I just shouldn't be in this situation. I don't even know how to use an analogy to describe it. Maybe, maybe it's something like if you ever went to like a, a wedding or some sort of thing and you walk in and you got shorts on and a shirt and everybody's, they're all dressed real nice and you're like, oh gosh, I didn't know it was this type of, I didn't know it was this type of event or this type of thing. It just, it just makes you feel really uncomfortable and you think, maybe I shouldn't be here. It'd be, just be best if I, if I left. I mean, maybe that's the smallest taste you could get of what's being talked about here. Just a, a pure dread of, I don't belong in the presence of God because I am a sinner and he is not. I think dwelling on his holiness is something we should do more because it leads to our praise of him, the one who has provided for us holiness through his son. Paul goes on and we're almost done. He says, no one has ever seen or can see him. Now in Scripture, some have been allowed to see his glory. Moses was able to see his backside, it says. But none can look upon him. Some in the Bible have seen Jesus. We know this as Jesus walked about and lived his life. But even some of the disciples had asked Jesus, you remember, just show us the Father. And remember, Jesus would reply, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They were never allowed to go and look upon the Father. And why is that? It's because you can't. You're not good enough. You're not righteous enough. No one ever has and no one ever can see him. And Paul then ends, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. It's just interesting how Paul jumped into this doxology or this, this praise. Remember, he's, he's telling Timothy what not to do, and then he's telling Timothy what to do, and then he's saying, I charge you, Timothy, to live this way, and I charge you in the name of God the Father and also in Jesus. And Paul just can't help himself of how that then goes into this praise of God, of saying, he alone is worthy of honor. He alone is worthy of praise and of power. Yet, we're reminded in Paul's letters and all throughout Scripture, this massive, unapproachable, awesome, holy God, the Bible tells us, brings us near to himself through the blood of his son. You see, when you describe God to somebody or when you read this and you start to really think about it, it does feel I'm so distant from him. And I don't know, maybe when you come in here to church or to worship, maybe at times you just feel so distant from God because of, of who you are. Yet the good news is that he has drawn you to himself in what you could not do. You couldn't approach him. You, you couldn't go to him. And so thanks be to God what God did for you. If you're a Christian this morning, if you've been saved by his grace, he has grabbed you. He has brought you to himself. And he has cleansed you through the blood of his son so that now you get to come and worship God. When we gather in this place, we don't have to question, God, will the Holy Spirit be here today? Yes, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. 
He's given the Holy Spirit to you. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit is here today. Because God loves you so much that he's bestowed that upon you. And you don't have to question that for one second. This is the God that we come to worship. And this is the God that Paul bases his charge on to Timothy. He says, Timothy, do these things. I want to remind you. And I don't know how you take all of this. And I know that this is my job. Church is my, is my job. I get that. Okay, and so I understand. But the church is no light matter. I don't know if you see it as just something kind of flippant. A lot of people do today. They come when they want. They're involved just when they want to be. They volunteer their time just if it's convenient. They follow the things that God has called them to do sometimes. But what Paul is telling Timothy here as the pastor of this church in Ephesus, he's saying, Timothy, I charge you to be faithful to the church. That's what he's saying. These are the commandments that God has given you. Preach the word. Baptize people. Observe the Lord's Supper together. Grow together. Be unified as a church family. These these things are not a light matter. In fact, it's not just the calling on my life because God has called me to the pastorate right now. It's the calling to your life because you are a church member. You are a church member. And so it's not something that should be taken lightly. It needs to be seen as something that is a blessing of God that now he allows us to be a part of the church. And he says, go and be faithful with these commandments. I hope that you'll understand my heart in all of this this morning. These commands of Paul to Timothy for, the, for Timothy to be the pastor that God has called him to be and to do the things and for the church to be the church that God has, has called it to be is really an important matter. It's so important that when Paul says, on what basis could I give this command? Oh, I know. On God the Father and on the Son, Jesus Christ. That's how important this is. And again, I I think what's generally, uh, at least the struggle I see with a lot of Christians today is the everyday ho-hum of being a Christian the weekly ho-hum of coming to church and singing songs, shaking people's hands, giving offering, maybe sitting in Sunday school if you're one who does that. It's just kind of just kind of boring. And I see a lot of Christians trying to fill their life with other things because these commandments of God just don't seem good enough anymore. Times are changing and I just I need something extra. I want to warn you that if you're struggling with that, that is not a word from God this morning. That is a deception of Satan. At the proper time, Christ will come back. And then, you don't have to follow these commandments anymore because we will be with him forever. But until then, keep doing these things. You need to hear the word preached. You need to grow in this Bible. The people around you right now, whether you think it or not, you need them. You need them so desperately. 
And I bet you feel it. Because trying to be a Christian on your own is awful. It's awful. No one to tell your sin to. You say, what, I'm supposed to tell my sin to people? You are actually. Holding that sin in, so awful. Sharing, not being able to share joys with somebody. I went golfing on my own once. That was the worst thing I'd ever done. I hit, a, I hit like this great shot, and I'm like, do you see that? No, nobody saw it. it was, I couldn't brag to anybody. And I'm like, what's the point if you can't show off a little bit? <clears throat> God has put us together for a purpose, and it's to honor him, but it's also so that we can be the people God has called us to be to do the tasks that he's called us to do. Yes, go and do these commandments, but it doesn't all hinge on Tim. It was all finished in Christ. And now I have the privilege of being able to come and to serve God as faithfully as I can. Why? To honor him, but also, hopefully, so that the church can be bettered, so that we can serve how we're supposed to serve and love each other and care for each other how we're supposed to care for each other in a world, frankly, that's continuing to push inside of our walls and say, what you're doing is bad. What you're doing is wrong. So we need each other to love and to care. This is why Paul states this commandment as being so important. Because it's grounded and rooted in God the Father and in Jesus Christ. So I trust that we will take it as something that is very important as well. And that we, here at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, because that's who I'm preaching to, not to anybody else. I know it goes on the radio. I know that this goes on TV. I'm not preaching. I'm preaching to Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. That we at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church will fulfill the commands that God has given us, unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Let us be faithful to that. Let's bow together. Let's pray this morning. <clears throat> God, we thank you for how good you are to us. God, we do ask that you would forgive us of sin. God, help us to rid our lives of the things that ensnare us and enslave us. God, you know that life is difficult. Jesus knows this. He lived this life. And God, you know that we are not perfect. But God, we do ask that you would forgive us for our lack of praise to you. Of having those times when we just think, I don't have it today. God, forgive us of that. But God, I thank you that you do forgive us of that. That you know that about us. You know our weaknesses. You know our downfalls. You know all of our struggles. And yet still, for some reason, you would call us your children. You would adopt us into your family through the blood of your son, <clears throat> who we killed, and you would love us that you would guide us. <clears throat> and it would go so far that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that in our death, because you love us so much, death becomes our victory. To where we will have no more struggles, no more tears, no more pain, but we will get to spend eternity with you in glory forever. Again, not because of our own doing, not because we kept the commandments so well, no, but because Jesus was perfect. And be because by grace, through faith, we are his. God, I pray that we would ponder that. I pray that we would be excited about how good you are to us. God, that we wouldn't be scared of any foe or enemy. 
that we would face in this world because your word tells us we do not face flesh and blood. That's not our enemy. It's the principalities and the powers. And God, you have won that battle completely by Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And now he sits at your right hand with all power, and we wait as the church for him to return. But God, we trust and know that he will return at the proper time. And so God, until then, help us to be faithful. Help us to love you. Help us to love our church family. Help us to love a lost world enough to share with them that there is hope, that there is an everlasting joy and peace, but it can only be found in one place, through one man. That man's name is Jesus. And God, we trust that you will work in our lives. God, we trust that you will grow us in your grace, that you will help us to understand you more, and in doing that, understand ourselves more. Help us to love our church family well, because your word does tell us this is how they will know that you are my disciple, the love you have for one another. So God, I pray that we would take these commands that you've given us seriously, trusting, again, in your grace and in your mercy, and that you will continue to work. God, during this time, I pray that we would respond to your word however we should. Maybe we just need to sit and pray for a little bit. Maybe we need to sing this song loudly and and proudly in a way that honors you. But God, I pray that each of us would respond how we should this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.